0: today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. We'll be reading verses 2 through 12. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who does not take offense at me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And all of God's people said, Amen. When I was growing up in suburban Atlanta, our family took one week-long summer vacation every year, and it was to the same place, sometimes the same hotel, once we found one that suited all five of us. Our destination, glamorous and exotic, Panama City Beach, Florida. Sugar white sand, emerald green waters, throw in a mom-and-pop hotel swimming pool, and there was nothing more we could have asked for. It was our version of paradise. But for my poor, Scots-Irish, sunburn-prone father, this was not the ideal vacation. It was a trip that was a labor of love. Dad spent his vacation days at the Greyhound racetrack that wasn't far from the beach or reading in the room, just waiting for the sun to go down enough so that he could stand to come out and play in the ocean with us. And on the best night of the vacation, he'd be waiting in the car, already ready, while the rest of us were still getting dressed, to head out to our favorite restaurant, the Seahawk and there at the Seahawk, we would eat ourselves silly on popcorn shrimp and hush puppies and their famous dessert, mile high coca moca rum pie. The Seahawk night, as you can tell, was much anticipated and never failed to delight. And some years, if it was a really good year, we'd even go twice. But one year, When my sisters and I were teenagers, we piled in the car to head to the Seahawk and on the way we negotiated our orders so that everybody could have a bite of everybody else's meal. And we were laughing as we made the turn into the Seahawk only to look up and discover that our favorite restaurant of all time had burnt down all that was left was one or two charred walls still standing, and everything else, the salad bar, the tiny little dance floor, our favorite booth, burned to ashes. Poor dad slowly circled the parking lot around the building, just processing. A few tears fell between my sisters and me as we wondered what had happened and if anybody had been hurt. As it turned out later, the motel owner told us that it happened months ago in the middle of the night, electrical fire, everybody was okay. And then dad had to actually pull into a parking space in front of the Seahawk just so we could have a moment to come to terms. Hopes dashed, anticipation in ashes. We finally drove off in search of a lesser restaurant an alternative plan. This was most decidedly not what we had expected. In our passage today, John the Baptist asks a question that reveals that things are not going the way he had expected either. As we read last week, John bursts on the scene in Matthew like a prophet of old. He wears camel hair clothes like Elijah, and he sounds like Isaiah and Amos. His work is to prepare the way of the Lord, calling the people to repent, but it's not just a confession. He's calling them to actual change, change of mind and heart and life so that their lives can be open, so that there can clear a path to the new things that the Messiah will do. The kingdom has come near, John thunders. The Messiah is on his way now, axe swinging for the deadwood and a winnowing fork in his hand, ready to separate the wheat and the chaff and burn that chaff with unquenchable fire. Prepare, repent now. Well, when we meet John here in chapter 11, things have slowed down a bit. Jesus is out preaching and teaching and healing, and John, he's stuck in prison. Ever the prophet, John speaks up when the local ruler of the region, the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, plans to marry a close female relative named Herodias, which Leviticus 18 says is a no-no. And as he usually does, John speaks bold truth right to Herod Antipas' face. It's unlawful for you to have her, John says. And Herod Antipas swiftly retaliates by throwing John into prison, effectively silencing him. With plenty of time on his hands in prison, John apparently starts noticing the difference between the Messiah he expected and the Messiah Jesus is turning out to be. It's a crisis of confidence. Because back in chapter three, John was pretty clear when Jesus came out to the Jordan to be baptized, he was clear that he understood that Jesus was the Messiah, the one who is to come. He says to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you, and and yet you come to me? But Jesus insists on being baptized by John. He says it's proper for us in this way to fulfill this righteousness. John probably expected for Jesus to rise up out of the water with an axe in one hand and a winnowing fork in the other, ready to set everything on fire. Jesus is not living up to John's expectations. This is not the Messiah John expected. Since his baptism, Jesus has been ministering all over the Galilean countryside. He's preaching and teaching, healing and casting out demons, changing people's thinking and their hearts and their lives, inviting them into the kingdom of heaven, into the kingdom of In this time in Matthew, Jesus has preached the Sermon on the Mount, reframing the laws people thought they knew so well and teaching them to think about it in ways they'd never considered. He's taught them how to pray the Lord's Prayer. He's taught them how to love their enemies. His every word, his every action, his every step revealing what it looks like for God's will to be done on earth. As it is in heaven. In everything that Jesus has done, he is winnowing. He is cutting out the deadwood, winnowing out the brokenness and sin of the world, making a way for everyone who has ears to hear to move from lives of deadwood and chaff into lives of bountiful and nourishing fruitfulness. Compassion and teaching and inviting, John the Baptist doesn't recognize the Messiah he expected. So, again, always the prophet, always the one to speak his mind, he sends his disciples straight to Jesus to ask, Are you the one that is to come, or are we to wait for another? Now, this isn't a direct rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. The question itself assumes that Jesus knows more about the Messiah than John himself does. But it does reveal that Jesus is not acting like the Messiah that John wanted, that he expected. There's too much compassion and teaching, not enough unquenchable fire. Hence the question, are you the one? Or should we wait for another? Well, as he so often does, Jesus doesn't answer John's question directly. Instead, he flips the script and he points John's disciples to what they have heard and seen. What they themselves have witnessed Jesus doing. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Go and tell what you hear and see, Jesus says to John's disciples. Later, Jesus will tell another group of people to go and tell what they have seen. The women at the empty tomb, the first witnesses of the resurrection. In both cases, Jesus will not do the witnesses' work for them. He doesn't give them talking points, and he doesn't hand them a certificate of authenticity. Both the women at the tomb and John and his disciples are going to have to discern who Jesus is by what they themselves have seen and experienced. They're going to have to untangle their own expectations from the reality of what they have witnessed and experienced in Jesus. That's their work to do. Now, notably, the words describing what Jesus has been doing as the Messiah come straight from the same prophet— that John the Baptist himself quotes, the one who said that John the Baptist would be the voice crying out in the wilderness. That prophet is Isaiah. The work Jesus describes in verse 5, the lame shall walk, the blind receive their sight, the leopards be cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead raise, the poor have good news brought for them. These are the very exact words of the prophet Isaiah in chapters 35, 42, and 61. Now, we may may not immediately recognize them, but first century listeners absolutely would have immediately recognized them as Isaiah's words. They would have realized that Isaiah's vision of who the Messiah should be a compassionate, healing, world changing Messiah. He was standing right there in front of them in the flesh. And they were his witnesses, the ones who had seen and heard this Messiah, and then could go and tell about what they had experienced. But before John's disciples can go and tell him what they've seen, there's one more verse to consider. Verse 6. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Now, the word offense may throw us off a little bit as modern listeners when we first hear it. Other translations read, blessed is the one who does not stumble because of me, or who does not fall away because of me, or who doesn't reject me for what I do. The Good News translation, however, is my favorite. Happy are those who have no doubts about me. The Greek word here conveys all of that and more. It's the word scandalizane. What a great word. It's the word that we get our English word scandal or scandalized from. John and the others are scandalized that Jesus is not acting the way they're expecting him to act. He is not meeting their expectations. They are stumbling over and having doubts over whether or not he's really the Messiah, because he is not doing what they expected. And in very human fashion, when something doesn't meet our expectations, we often become very confused and frustrated, and we are frequently looking for someone to blame, some way to offload our own discomfort between the expectations we have and the reality before us. John chooses Jesus. He puts the blame on Jesus. His question, while not disrespectful, it implies a certain critique. Are you it? Is this it? Or is there someone coming along after you who's going to bring on the fire? That's not the real translation, that's me. I mean, who knows? Maybe Jesus is the warm-up act for this axe-wielding, winnowing, fork-waving Messiah John was amped up for. Notice. Jesus doesn't seem surprised or particularly bothered by John's question, and he absolutely does not bring the fire when he answers him either. And in fact, Jesus responds by using John's favorite prophet, Isaiah. And then he allows John and his followers to answer their own question without shame or embarrassment or even an overt correction. Jesus makes room for them to say what needs to be said. Not in a coercive way, but with their own truth, bearing witness to what they themselves have seen and experienced in him. This one standing right before them, who was living out everything that Isaiah said the Messiah would do. of the Messiah's saving work is setting things to rights, and that includes dealing with what is wrong in this world, the deadwood, the chaff, that refuses to repent or to change or to be made new. John's absolutely right about that, and Jesus will deal with that. But the same prophets that call for the deadwood and the chaff to be burned out of existence also describe a Messiah who puts things to right through healing, through casting out demons, through miracles, through teaching and preaching, through giving sight to the blind, whether we are spiritually blind or physically blind, by helping the lame to walk and even leap, whether it's bodies that are paralyzed or those whose hearts are paralyzed setting the prisoners free, whether that's from literal chains or the chains of sin and shame and pain. That is the Messiah's saving work, too. Judgment and winnowing are part of the process, but the larger process is the redemption and healing of the world. Jesus came not to condemn, but to save. So it's not that John is wrong completely or that his expectations have no basis in scripture. They do. But his expectations are based on just one part of the prophet's vision of the Messiah. It's like he's looking at the Messiah from a very narrow angle. And he has forgotten, as he draws expectations from that tiny view he has, He's forgotten that God has the wide-angle lens. The expectations he and others have formed based on that narrow, narrow view have become rigid and absolute, which is a very, very human pattern, isn't it? To see the part of something and assume that we've seen the whole To understand one little piece about something and assume we understand all of it. And, of course, then, to assume that the God of all creation and time and space should agree with us. That's human nature. In a sense, it is John's rigid expectations of the Messiah that have created his prison. And he doesn't know how to escape it. His first reaction is to blame, blame Jesus. Maybe you're not the Messiah you're supposed to be. Maybe there's been a mistake. Maybe someone else is going to come along and do it right. But in response, Jesus gives our fiery John a gentle answer. One that asks his disciples, and thus John 2, simply to pause And bear witness to what they've experienced, what they've seen and heard in Jesus. And in their witness to Jesus is the vision that the prophets told so long ago. In their witness of what they've heard and seen in Jesus is the key that John can use, if he so chooses, to unlock the prison of his expectations. Sisters and brothers, John is not alone. Don't we all sometimes fall into the prison of our own rigid expectations? Sometimes we may not even realize how many expectations we have or how powerful that they have become. So often we have such specific expectations about how our own lives should look at this stage how we ought to be or how we ought to feel about something or about how others should be and feel about something or how God should be at work in the world and with whom and on what time scale. We have a lot of expectations. And when our expectations are not met to our satisfaction, we often look for someone to blame, some way to offload that discomfort and disappointment. And all of that gets in our way of playing the unique, designed-by-God role that each of us has in his kingdom. Jesus closes this interaction by lauding John the Baptist for fulfilling his unique, designed-by-God role. And John did it. He did prepare the way. He helped the people repent and clear out some of that chaff and deadwood, so they'd be ready for the new thing the Messiah was doing. Here's what Jesus says, verse 10. This is the one about whom it was written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus celebrates that John has done his prophetic role in preparing the way for the Messiah, and great is John. But it's also clear in what Jesus says that John isn't yet clear if he is going to fully join in the kingdom work this Messiah is doing if he's going to put aside his doubts and expectations and join the Messiah in his saving work. John has a role, and he's done it well. And now he has to remember he is not in charge. He's not the boss. He's not the Messiah. It is not God's job to fulfill John's human-sized, narrow-angled expectations. Or ours, either. But isn't that good and joyful news? God did not send us a Messiah cut down to each of our specifications and preferences. And that would be impossible anyway, wouldn't it? Because we all have different specifications and preferences. No, far, far better than that. God has sent us the Messiah that we needed, the one who brings salvation and healing and hope and peace and joy to a world that is in desperate need of Him. Sisters and brothers, May we put down our doubts and expectations and let Jesus be Jesus. May we who have heard and seen and experienced the salvation of our God let go. Let go of anything that holds us back from fully engaging in what He has called us to do and who He has called us to be so that we like John's disciples, like the women at the tomb, can go and tell and live the joy of our Lord. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me. Oh Lord, like John, we have our own expectations. And sometimes those become rigid, and we think things have to go the way we have determined and look the way we would prefer. And yet, Lord, when we get stuck in the prisons of our own expectations, we can't fully live in to your vision, to your hope, joy, and peace. Help us, Lord. Help us to let go of our specific expectations and live instead with expectancy, the hope and the truth that you are bringing about your salvation in our world and what joy it is to be a part of your story. In Christ's name, amen.